We can find our seats. We'll get started this morning. As you're finding your seats, if you could turn to Exodus chapter 11. We'll start in verse 4. Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. And I have a couple of non-announcements that I'm going to announce right now. Um, this uh, summer, as we heard, we're going to be out there. Well, this summer we're going to be taking a break of, ex- of Exodus. We'll be back into Exodus in the fall. Um, so July, we're going to be outside. We just heard that 9 a.m. 9 a.m. in the back over here, there'll be people giving you directions. Uh, it's going to be one service family style. So we had a good time last year doing that. And uh, there'll be a barbecue afterwards. Three classes coming up. I've announced this like every Sunday. So uh, next week is going to be the first class. Um, high schoolers. It's a presuppositional apologetics class from 10 o'clock to noon, Monday through Friday next week. Uh, if you haven't registered yet, if you can go online to the website, countryoaks.org. And uh, on the website, on the homepage, there is a link um, that you can click on and register for the class starting tomorrow, 10 a.m. to 12, two hours a day for Monday through Friday. The second class is going to be an adult presuppositional apologetics class. It's going to be starting uh, uh, July 11th, and it's going to go all the way through August. Um, It's going to be Sundays, 6 p.m., and I've changed it to 7 15. I just didn't think I could get it all in as I was going through my notes in one hour. So an hour and 15 minutes, uh, Sundays, starting July 11th through August. There will be child care for 8 years old and under for that class. And if you could uh, register online and let us know if you have um, kids that will be a part of that child care so we know how many helpers we need to get. Um, anyone above the age of 8 is welcome to come to the class just remember that it's an hour and 15 minutes long, so you as parents need to determine uh, how well your child um, over the age of eight can handle that. And lastly, in the fall, we're going to be starting a social justice in the gospel class. The presuppositional apologetics class is separate from that class. I just want to be clear because there's a lot of excitement um, for both from what I've been hearing. But the presuppositional apologetics will be foundational to that class. You can go to either or, um, but if you go to both, it will be uh, helpful. So if you have any questions, please let me know. But today, we're going to be going over Exodus, and we're going to read Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. If you would, read along with me, starting again in verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight... I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, God, as we go through um, a review of the plague narrative, Lord, and what has happened in the book of Exodus, Lord, I pray that you continue to reveal what it means that you are Yahweh to us, Lord, your name to us, the significance of who you are, your character. That I pray that we learn that you're not only a God that's just, but also a God that's merciful, a God that's patient and faithful. Lord, a God that's almighty and sovereign. Now, these saints that have been revealed to us this interaction with Egypt and Pharaoh, Lord, I pray that we learn to take it to heart, Lord, and trust in who you are in our day-to-day lives, Lord. Be with us, Lord. Reveal your name to us. Reveal your character to us this morning. Thank you for inspiring this text, this story, Lord, this true historical event recorded for us, Lord, to learn about you. Be with us in your son's name. Thankful for Austin's sermons last week as he did an overview of all the plagues, really the plague narrative. We learned that judgment with the ten plagues was not the only purpose of God, but there were many different purposes in this interaction between Pharaoh and Yahweh and Egypt and God. One of the main purposes, if not the main purpose, was God revealing his name. God making known his name. And I hope that was clear uh, with the sermon that Austin preached last week. But I I really wanted us to see that God makes this very clear that this is one of the main purposes of his interaction with Pharaoh in Egypt. So I want to walk through passage by passage where God makes this clear. Starting in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, it says this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know, there's that word, You shall know that I am the Lord. Again, capital L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I am Yahweh. I hope that is starting to sound very familiar. During the burning bush, when God revealed himself to Moses, he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am whom I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I believe more than anything what God was saying to Moses is, I'm about to show you who I am. And we see this phrase, I am, over and over again. Again, Exodus 7 verse 5 says this, the Egyptians shall know, know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus 7, 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. Behold, in the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Exodus chapter 8, verse 10 says this, And he said, Tomorrow... Moses said, it shall, or it, it, be it as you say, 
so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, no one like the Lord, Yahweh, our God. Exodus chapter 8, verse 22 says this, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Again, Exodus chapter 9, verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, that the earth is Yahweh. Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. God is revealing his name. Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, what we just read, but no, not a dog shall growl against any of my people Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And this just keeps going. In fact, it goes on past the plague narrative, chapter 14, verse 4, and I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Exodus 14, 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God is revealing his name, revealing the meaning of Yahweh, truths that he hadn't revealed in Genesis. In fact, Genesis, or Exodus 6, verse 3 says this, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, Exodus, God is making his name known in a way he didn't make known to the fathers of Israel. He's revealing his name, what it means that he is Yahweh. And as I was sitting listening to Austin preach last week, I asked myself this question, what do we learn about God's name in the 10 plagues, in the plague narrative? And so this week I've been kind of thinking about that, meditating on it, studying it, and I came up with seven things. I think there's more than seven things, but there's at least seven lessons we learn from the plague narrative, and that's going to be our sermon this morning. Seven lessons we learn about God's name in the plague narrative of Exodus. So this will be a review. Um, the first lesson is this, and I think this one's obvious. Yahweh is almighty. Right? That's clear in the plagues. Awesome display of power. God, Yahweh, is all-powerful. I mean, think about it, the ninth plague. Just think about that one. He turns off the sun. That there was a darkness, it says, that could be felt. 
God's name means power. In fact, that's just one of the names Jesus gives God, power. In Mark 14, 62, it says this, And Jesus said, I am, and you will see uh, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He just calls his Father power. Daniel 4, verse 35 says this, And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will. Among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, that means both heaven and earth, and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? God is all-powerful, in other words, not man. He's in control. No one can stay his hand. That includes Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world in this time. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all the hosts. In other words, he, he spoke things into creation. I mean, just think about the creation account. God spoke, and something came out of nothing. Just think about that for a second. Try to wrap your mind around something coming from nothing. And not just something... Everything, <laughs> everything that was created came out of nothing when God spoke. In fact, I love Genesis chapter 1, 14 through 16. I know I've said this a ton of times, but it says this, And the Lord said, Let there be, be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let there be signs for seasons and for days and for years, and let um, then be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, verse 16, and the Lord made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon. And here's my favorite part, and the stars. We get three words. The greatest, the biggest, the most powerful objects in the universe, and we get three words, and the stars. I mean, I was at the pool all day, I think Friday. The sun is 94 million miles away, and it will burn you. You think about it, that we protect ourselves by putting sunscreen all over us, because it's that powerful. And compared to the stars that are out there in the universe, it's small and weak, and we get, and the stars. God threw those stars up there so that we would know just how big he is. In fact, that's what Psalms 19.1 tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God. They scream that God is glorious. And the sky proclaims his handiworks. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge that God is almighty. When he speaks, stars are made. Romans 1.19 says this, For what we can know about God, what can be known about God is plain to them. That's us, man. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. All you have to do is look up. In Genesis, God created everything out of nothing. He brought order out of chaos, showing his power. In Exodus, God made chaos Ten times, ten plagues, then brought that back into order again. 
revealing his almighty power over everything, over nature, right? He turned the Nile, the mighty Nile, into blood, over bugs, gnats, and flies, over animals, frogs, and livestock, over the sun, just shutting it off, over the weather, weather, hailstorm, man's health, boils, even over life and death will see in the 10th plague. The plagues show us that Yahweh is all-powerful. His name is power. The second lesson that we learn is that Yahweh is also jealous. Yahweh is jealous. Again, just like power, he is just called jealous. Exodus 34, 14 says this, For you shall worship no other god for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Yahweh means God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. Egypt was a pagan nation. In other words, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They exchanged the glory of Yahweh for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things. That's Romans one twenty two. They worshipped the creation instead of the creator. Instead of looking at the sun and the stars and worshiping God who created it all, therefore being way more glorious, they worship the creation. All types of false gods that they worship, all types of idols. And it seems like when you go through the plague narrative that each plague was an attack on one of the false gods of Egypt. Uh, Austin talked about this Last week, Amara, like the sun god, got attacked that god, false god, by causing darkness, making it very clear that God is the only true God who's in control of the sun. Even Pharaoh himself, who is seen as a god, God is proving that he is no god, just a man. There is only one true God. God will not share his glory with another. He will not share his glory with with a man. I think one of my favorite examples of this is actually found in the New Testament, Acts. And just so you know, the character of God is perfectly balanced in both the Old and New Testament. We see that God is a jealous God even in the New Testament. Acts chapter 12, verse 21 says this, And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat among the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. In other words, they were starting to say, you are a God, not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory. I know for many of us that's a struggle, this concept of God being jealous because that word jealous has such a negative connotation to it, and I think it's important to examine exactly what that word jealous means. The Hebrew word jealous is really related to the idea of zeal. In other words, God has a zeal and jealousy for his glory, and that's clear in scripture. Let me just read a couple passages. Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them to serve them, that's false gods, for I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. 
Deuteronomy 4.24 says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6.15 says this, For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. And there's just passage after passage after passage. God will not share his glory with anyone else. Yahweh is a jealous God. And if you're still struggling with that, let me remind you what I've said a number of times from this pulpit. That God is jealous for his glory. And he has a zeal for his glory. And they may sound selfish, but you have to remember that God's glory is our greatest good. Think about that. I've asked this before. What's the most glorious thing in Scripture? Let me say it out loud. Maybe people whisper me. It's the glorious thing that happened in Scripture. The cross. The resurrection. The most glorious thing for God. What glorifies God more than anything else is the cross and resurrection. What's the thing that brings us the most good? The cross and resurrection. God's glory is our greatest good. Therefore, when God glorifies himself, he is loving towards us. Zealous for his glory, for our good. Brings us to the third lesson that we learn from the plague narrative. Yahweh is patient. He's patient. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, I believe it's the clearest revelation of God's name. I believe they're the two most important verses in all of the Old Testament. They're up there. They're not. And maybe two of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Probably the two most neglected verses in all of Scripture. It's the clearest revelation of God's name in all of the Bible. Verse 6 says this, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... That's Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time we see God's name repeated twice like that in all Scripture. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Yahweh means slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He's patient. I believe we see this in the plague narrative, and you might be thinking, that's not what I see in the plague narrative. I see the God of wrath, justice, where do you see patience? Remember Exodus 4.21. This is before the plagues. It says this. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. That's the command. Here's the consequence if you don't obey the command. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. In other words, the just punishment for Pharaoh's sin is the death of the firstborn. Which leads to a question, why the other nine plagues then? The death of the firstborn is the tenth plague. Why the other nine plagues? I believe a purpose, there's a number of purposes, but a purpose one of the main purposes was to give Pharaoh the warning. In fact, nine warnings. He was warning Pharaoh of the final judgment that would come. God gave five or nine warnings. In fact, when you look at the plagues, each plague seems to get worse and worse and worse in its severity. I mean, think about it. The staff turning into the snake in chapter 7 wasn't one of the plagues. 
It's only after that that the first plague came, the Nile turning into blood, which was another warning of future disaster that was coming. The frogs, the mosquitoes, the flies brought major discomfort. Chapter 8. The death of the livestock in chapter 9 destroyed wealth and livelihood. The boils in chapter 9 was physical discomfort and disfigurement. Attacking physical bodies, it's, it's getting worse. Fairy. Hail and locusts in chapter 9 and 10 was massive and total economic destruction. Darkness in chapter 10 was a symbol of judgment and disaster. It was one last warning. And finally, death. The death of the firstborn. Remember, Exodus 4.23 says, If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Before we get there, there was nine warnings, nine plagues getting more and more severe. God was graciously and patiently giving Pharaoh and Egypt a chance to repent. Even though he knew they wouldn't, even though he knew his patience, his signs and wonders would only further harden Pharaoh's heart. Yahweh is patient brings us to a fourth lesson that I believe we learn in the plague narrative. Yahweh is merciful. Again, Exodus 34 verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. I believe the plague narrative shows us, it displays God's mercy and grace. You might be asking how. It's not what you get when you think of the plague narrative for most people. Well, we just talked about the mercy on Pharaoh, nine warnings before the final judgment. There was also mercy on the Egyptians. Austin talked about this last week. Exodus 9 verse 20 says this, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, that's the Egyptians hurried his slave and his livestock into the house houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field to be destroyed by the hail. Those who feared God received mercy from the hail. But more than anything, God displays his mercy on Israel. He saved them those who earlier were crying out to him for mercy. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their, uh, their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to, to God. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 says this, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. In other words, God is going to have mercy on Israel because Yahweh is merciful. Yet, Yahweh is also just. Which leads us to our fifth lesson. Yahweh is just. In fact, I think the core of who Yahweh is and what is being shown in all of the book of Exodus 
is that God, God, Yahweh, is both just and merciful. We see God's justice displayed in Egypt. We see God's mercy displayed in Israel. Again, Exodus 34, verse 6 says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God is merciful, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He won't turn a blind eye to sin. He won't just overlook sin. He is just. In fact, look at Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. You should be in that. Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. He says this. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, um, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against all the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt justice poured out on them in Israel. God's mercy poured out on them. And this is a really hard question that gets asked when we read this passage. Why the death of the firstborn? I know many of you in, in my own heart struggle when you read through this and get to the 10th plague. We're going to spend a lot of time answering that question when we get back in the fall and get back into the plague narrative, especially when we start examining the Passover one main reason is this. It was divine judgment. Listen, in the plague narrative, there was a lot going on, and God was doing more than just judging, but he was judging. Judgment in response to the sins of Egypt. Look at verse 6 again. It says this, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. A great cry. Cry. That word cry in Hebrew is used five times in the book of Exodus, only two times before chapter 11, and there's a connection that's meant to be seen. Exodus 3, 7, again, says this, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. In other words, God has heard the cry of the Israelites because of their taskmasters and know their suffering. Exodus 3, 9, it says this, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen, also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. The author is making a connection here. All the plagues were divine judgment, but especially the death of the firstborn, which led to a great cry in Egypt. Again, a due punishment for the sins of Egypt. Philip Rakin writes, with this plague, like the final one, the tenth, God would punish the Egyptians for their sins, and justly so. The death of the firstborn was a, an act of justice because Pharaoh had tried to exterminate the Israelites. 
Exodus began with an attempted genocide in chapter 1. And it was only right for God to judge the Egyptians for their murderous intent. The wailing that went up from the Egyptians was fair punishment for the way they had made the Israelites well for more than 400 years. In both cases, the Bible uses the same word to describe their lament. According to God's perfect justice, it was Egypt's turn to cry out in distress. Remember Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is only after nine warnings that God brought this final judgment. But Yahweh is just. And there will be justice. Which leads to a sixth lesson that we learn in the plague narrative. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is faithful. In the plague narrative, God was fulfilling a promise that he made hundreds of years earlier to one man. Genesis 15, 13 says this, The Lord said to Abram, this is before Israel was a nation, before Isaac, Jacob, or the twelve brothers, before Abram was Abraham, this is what God said, Know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards you shall come out with great possessions. That promise is going to be fulfilled. The plague narrative was the fulfillment of this promise and God made that very clear. Exodus 2, verse 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to, the, to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, that's Genesis 15, and with Isaac, with Jacob. Verse 25 says this, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Yahweh keeps his promises. In Exodus 6, verse 5, it says this, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God has not forgotten his covenant. When God makes a promise, he fulfills it. He told Moses, I have remembered my covenant, therefore he acted with ten plagues to free his people. Yahweh is faithful to keep his promises. And this is an important lesson for us. Listen, our hope depends on the knowledge that God is consistent and faithful. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken Will he not fulfill it? God is faithful. Exodus 6, 5, I have remembered my covenant. Yahweh is faithful. Seventh and final lesson that I believe we learn. I think there's other lessons too, but for this sermon today. 
so that we can get out for lunch at some point. Yahweh is sovereign. The plagues teach us that Yahweh is sovereign, not Pharaoh, not man. Think about it. Not only is Yahweh sovereign over the natural world, bugs, frogs, Nile. Not only is he sovereign over man's health, boils. Not only is he sovereign over weather, the hailstorm, sovereign over the sun, he turned it off. He's also sovereign over man's heart. Look what it says again, Exodus 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God is sovereign even over Pharaoh's heart. And the Bible is just clear on this. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. In the hands of Yahweh, he turns it wherever he wills. In other words, the king's heart is in God's hand and he turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, the heart of man plans his way. In other words, man thinks he's in control and that his plans will come to fruition. But the Lord establishes steps. God's truly the one that's in control. Proverbs 19, 21 Many are the plans in the mind of man, the man, but it's the it's purpose of the Lord that will stand. God's plan will be the ones that come about. And of course, that's James 13 through 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a, play, a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and, it, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. You know what that means? God, you're sovereign. You're in control, not me. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. God is sovereign, not man. And that leads to this. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy just clear in Exodus. In fact, that's what Yahweh's name means. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses is pleading with God to continue to reveal his name to him and to the Israelites. What does it mean that you're Yahweh? He says, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Look at Exodus chapter 11, verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt. You know why? God's justice. Such that there has never been, nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of my people Israel. God's mercy either man or beast, 
that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Egypt displaying God's justice. Israel displaying God's mercy. Israel is God's chosen people. Yahweh chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth. He made a covenant with them. He poured out his love and mercy and grace on them. And here's what's important about this. It was not because Israel was special. In other words, God didn't look down and go, man, I really need that people. It's not because they did anything. The plague narrative makes that as clear as can be, right? They were completely helpless. In fact, their spirit at one point was so broken, they couldn't even listen to the word of God. God poured out his grace and mercy on them. Why? Deuteronomy 7 tells us, 7, 6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. And God makes it very clear why not he chose them. It was not because you were more in number than any other person that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. In other words, Israel, there was nothing special in you. You were weak. You were the fewest of all people. You were a slave nation. So why Israel? Verse 8. But it's because the Lord loves you. That's why. God's mercy starts in God. Not something desirable in us. We need to understand that. Israel was special because of God's love. They didn't earn God's love. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yahweh is sovereign. And we learn of Exodus, that he will have mercy on whoever he will have mercy. The plagues teach us at least seven things about God's name. It teaches us more than that, but seven things that that I thought about this week, God put on my heart, is that Yahweh means that God is almighty, jealous, patient, merciful, just, faithful, sovereign. And even though the plagues and the plague narrative, a true story that truly happened, happened thousands of years ago, these lessons about God are so practical for us today. Philip Riken writes, each of these lessons has a practical implication for daily life of a Christian, New Testament believer. The God who sent the plagues against Egypt still rules over heaven and earth just like he did in the Old Testament. Listen, since God is almighty, he has the power to help us in every situation. God is still just as powerful as he was in the Old Testament in the time of the Exodus. 
That means if you belong to him, if you put your faith in Christ and you've been adopted into his family, there's nothing in this world to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? This all-powerful God that spoke everything into creation. What in creation should we fear? In fact, Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, those, for those who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is all-powerful. We have nothing to fear in this earth. Since God is jealous, we must not rob him of his glory by serving other gods. We should have a zeal for God's glory because he has a zeal for his glory. We should have a zeal for God's glory because it's our greatest good. It's the only place we'll find joy and satisfaction is in our relationship with God and his glory. God's glory should be our greatest treasure, worth more than anything else. And that's true worship. Worship comes from that word worth. It's worth the most in our life is what we worship. Back, Paul understood this greatly. In Philippians, Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, let me just stop there. Paul had a lot of gain. He's talking about the life he had before he became a Christian. He was a Pharisee. He was like a rock star. He was wealthy. He had a lot of honor. A lot of people didn't like Pharisees, but everyone wanted to be them. He was smart, well-educated, came from a prestigious family. And he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is a prison epistle. Paul left all that behind to follow Christ and landed him in jail. And he's saying this, it was worth it. In fact, if you read Philippians, it's nothing but joy and joy and joy and joy because Paul found the secret of joy God's glory and he pursued it with everything he had the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ Christ is worth more to him than anything else he sacrificed it all for him Paul had a zeal Christ. He had a zeal for God's glory. Count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Since God is patient, we can trust in his love and kindness. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. We're waiting for his second coming. It seems like it's taken a while. He's not slow to fulfilling his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Even though God was going to judge Egypt, that was going to happen, he was patient. He gave them warning after warning, opportunity to repent, knowing his patience would only harden Pharaoh's heart more. He was still patient. Since God is just, we can wait for his just judgments on his enemies. You know, it's because of God's justice that we can let injustices go. We hear a lot about justice right now in our culture and the demand of justice. It's because of God's justice we can let injustices go. Listen, every single sin will be paid for. That's justice. Every single sin will be paid for, either in eternity, in hell, or on the cross. But God will not just overlook sin. He will not let injustices just go off the hook. It says, He will by no means clear the guilty. You know, if people understood truly what justice needs, they'd be scared. And I hope in that fear they would run to Christ, mercy, grace. We want a just God. At the same time, as guilty sinners, just God is scared. But listen. For us that have put our faith in Christ, have received mercy and grace, and have been adopted into the family, and God is our Father now. Because of His justice, listen, if you're struggling because of some injustice that has happened to you, some sin that's happened to you, you can let it go. You can let it go for two reasons. First, you have been forgiven much. And you remember that. And second, no sin will go unpunished. All injustices will be paid for one day. Because God is just. Yahweh is just. Since God is merciful, He will save us when we cry to Him for help. You know, I love this. We're not there yet, and we'll get there, but in Exodus chapter 15, after the, the Exodus and Israel's in the wilderness at this point, out of Egypt, and Egypt's just left behind. In this point of the Exodus in the story, meta narrative of Scripture, there's a song that's praising God, and it says this in Exodus 15, verse 2 The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Israel's cry of distress is turned into a cry of praise. Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Again, since God is merciful, He will save us when we cry to Him for help. It's only true, though, if God is all-powerful and if God is sovereign. Therefore, since God is sovereign, we can trust Him. 
know, I don't have a life verse. I do. To be honest, I don't even know what a life verse is. You know, a lot of you guys have that. I just have too many. I always like go back and forth. Like, you know, is this one? Is this one? I don't know. Get confused. But when I ask, there's I, Romans eight twenty eight. It just jumps in my head. I think more than anything else. So maybe that's my life verse. And it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good those who are called according to his purpose. So important. This verse is only true if God is completely 100% sovereign over everything. Only if he causes all things. In other words, he is sovereign. He causes all things to work together for good. That's the only way it's true. Only if he is completely sovereign over everything. Like R.C. Sproul, there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. God's in control of everything. Then we can trust this verse. Only if he's completely sovereign over everything, then and only then can we trust that he causes all things to work together for good. Otherwise, he may want to help, but he doesn't have the ability. I find so much comfort in God's sovereignty. I know it causes a lot of problems in our thinking. It does. Thankful the secret things belong to the Lord. I don't need to know everything to know something's true. But for all the problems God's sovereignty caused, there's not one attribute of God that brings more comfort. When you add the love of God to the sovereignty of God, there's nothing to fear. Let's in here. The plague narrative teaches us many things about God's name, but one thing that's so comforting is we can trust God in uncertain times because he is sovereign over uncertain times. You know, I think like many of you, I've stopped watching the news. At least in the morning, I try to watch it just because I need to keep up to date on things that are happening. But I just can't watch it in the morning, every single morning anymore. It's just, it's just so discouraging. I spent this last year just really studying the social justice movement. I think it's a great danger to the church. You guys have heard me say that. To be honest, this last year as I've been studying this movement, it's just brought discouragement. Our culture is crumbling around us right now. I know many of us see it and feel it. And I don't know what the future holds. We are being judged. He said that one of the judgments on Pharaoh, one of the greatest judgments on Pharaoh was just letting him go. Well, that's what God's doing to our culture and our country right now. He's giving us up to a debased mind. He's letting us go to follow the lust of our hearts, Romans 1, and it's going to lead to destruction. There's a lot that can discourage us, but listen, every time I've been discouraged this last year, I remind myself one thing. God is sovereign. There's so much comfort. Let me read Psalms 46, verse 1. It says this. God is our refuge and strength. Our 
ever-present ever help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Let me just tell you what's happening there. And the psalmist is saying the earth and mountains, these are symbols of stability. I live on a mountain. You know, in California, sometimes it moves, but normally it doesn't. The earth and the mountain are things that we, we rest our homes on because they're stable. There's nothing more stable than a mountain or the earth, the ground. The sea is the exact opposite of this. It's instability, it's unpredictability. The sea has waves and storms and antiquity. The sea was very dangerous. It was a symbol of uncertainty and, and danger. Psalmist is asking, what are you going to do when your most stable things of your life, your mountains fall into chaos, the sea? What are we going to do when our culture and our country is falling apart in front of us? You know what we're going to do? We will not fear. That's what the psalmist says, because God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. God is sovereign. I think the one thing that we learn more than anything else in the plague narrative is that we can trust God through uncertain times. Chapter 5 of Exodus, there was uncertain times for Israel and God was trustworthy to bring them out of Egypt and get them to the promised land. We should not fear. We should trust God. Trust God in his goodness, trust God in his love, and trust God in his sovereignty. Everything's in his hand. There's nothing that's out of control. God is in control of everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you for the comfort that you bring, just your character, who you are. God, I thank you that Not only are you good, but you are in control and you're working all things together for good, Lord. I know that's beyond me. I don't know how you can take this mess that we find ourselves in, Lord, and bring good out of it. But Lord, I know you can and you will. Because you promised that and you're faithful to to your promises, Lord. God, help us as a church, Lord. Trust you. God, as uncertain times are coming, Lord. Help us to trust you and not fear, but to pursue you, Lord, to make you worth more in our lives than anything else, to worship you, God, for who you are. Help us as a church and as a people to have a zeal for your glory, God, willing to sacrifice everything. God, be with us. I pray that we, in our trust in you, Lord, our witness of your goodness, Lord, to this culture, to our city, to Tehachapi, as a church. In your son's name, amen.